0: Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Laudines Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick.
1: So welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore our fundamental civil and constitutional rights I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara. And I'm here with my co host, Mitch Winnick.
0: Jackie, another wonderful day to be with you on our podcast Sidebar. And we're thrilled to talk with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited for this particular um, podcast because over the last several episodes, We have focused on how state legislatures can have a significant impact on our constitutional rights, and we thought it might be helpful to speak with someone who is actually a state legislature. We're honored to have Assemblymember Buffy Wicks join us today. Assemblymember Wicks represents the East Bay in the California State Assembly, spanning the communities of Oakland to Richmond, including Berkeley. Before her election, Assembly Member Wicks was a community organizer and then joined the Obama administration, where she worked on a number of issues, including healthcare policy. She was just reelected for her third term this past November. So, congratulations and welcome to Sidebar.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: Before Mitch and I dive into kind of the questions related to your work, I think it would be great to hear why you decided to run for public office in 2017. It is, in many ways, seems a thankless job, and in our current political environment, it can even be a dangerous one, it seems. Uh, great
2: question. I'm, it's pretty simple. Donald Trump is the reason I ran for state assembly. I had worked for President Obama for six years. I helped get him elected. I was one of the early hires on his first campaign, worked at the White House, did his re elect, was very emotionally invested in his presidency. And then Donald Trump happened, and I was infuriated and feeling hopeless and didn't know what to do about it and felt like a lot of the work could be done at the state level, thinking that the federal government would become a dumpster fire, that we could do a lot at the state level to really help protect our rights, to ensure that we were fixing our challenges big and small. And so I jumped in, I, I never thought I'd run for office. And then here I was in a 12 way contested primary running for an open assembly seat that I happened to have lived in. And and obviously won. little did I know then, how actually important the state legislatures would become, especially given all these you know Supreme Court decisions that have been coming down, et cetera. so it's been it's been a real joy and honor and it's been fun and hard. And to your point, a, a little scary sometimes as well in terms of just the political discourse in our society at the moment. but there's no place else I'd rather be.
1: Thank you for that. Buffy, we've been speaking to legal scholars about the power of state legislatures. And you just commented on that, like you didn't necessarily appreciate how powerful the position would be, but you are the very first person that we've spoken to actually is doing the job. We'd like to provide our listeners a bit of inside baseball. So let's do a brief schoolhouse rock session about California. How does something get from an idea to a law?
2: Sure. A number of different ways, but primarily it's funny, my staff's always making fun of me. I'll be like, come into the office, and I'm like, I was uh, you know, driving to work today, I had this great idea. I was in the shower and I was thinking about this one thing and I have this great idea. Can we make this a law? Um, so ideas either come from from ideas that we have. I hear stuff on podcasts, on radio. I read something. I get reached out to by various different organizations or others that have ideas. We just ran a contest in my district called There Ought to Be a Law, which yielded over 500 different ideas from my district, all about things that folks think should be done. So ideas come our way essentially. And then we look at the economic and political viability of them. This year is going to be different than last because of the current budget and the deficits that we are concerned about. And then we look at the politics of it. Is this is this something we think can pass? And often I do bills that they're a bit of a Hail Mary, but I want to try anyway because you never know until you try. I've had bills that I do that I've done them three, four times. And then bigger bills I've done that came in late and we did them very quickly, but we passed them, right? And so looking at kind of what is the sort of reality of It's success. What is the need? How will this benefit the community? How will it benefit not just my constituents, but more broadly across the state? What are the politics in Sacramento around that bill? Who's going to oppose the bill? Who's going to support the bill? Where do I think my colleagues will land on the bill? And just the idea, the concept Is it gonna be different in the assembly than than the Senate and where will the governor land? So there's a lot of different sort of pieces to thinking through what we decide to take on. Again, some things I take on because I feel like it's important to set a conversation around it, knowing that it's gonna be difficult. And some things I take on just with full throttle desire to win and make sure that we're actually passing the bill.
0: Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An Honorable Profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found.
1: Welcome back to our conversation with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks.
2: Bills that don't cost money have a much higher likelihood of getting signed into law than bills that cost money. So that's always a factor as well. But essentially, you know, we take that, we, once we have a bill idea, we work with our ledge counsel to write it in a way that it fits within government code the right way. They're also kicking the tires on it to make sure that it's passed the sniff test of legality. Doesn't fly in the face of the state constitution or the federal conference constitution or other things that may mitigate it. It's then submitted in California I don't know what it's like in other state legislatures, but certainly in California, we have a series of deadlines that we have to meet. Deadline around when we have to submit ideas to, to ledge council, a deadline of when it has to, you know, be introduced on the floor. We then it gets re- referred to the rules committee. The rules committee will then decide how many other committees it goes to. If it's a housing idea, it comes through my committee, I'm the chair of housing, but it could go through, if it's like, for instance, a tenant protection bill all around rent control, it could come through my committee as well as judiciary committee, right? So things can get multi-referred. Sometimes they can get referred to three committees, Every committee you go through, there's going to be changes to the bill that happens. Then it gets analyzed if there's a fiscal cost to it. And if there's a fiscal cost to it, it goes to the Appropriations Committee. Appropriations Committee is what I like to affectionately or not affectionately refer to as where democracy goes to die, because often you have 10 bills that go in and five bills that come out with no explanation, no public vote, no public conversation around what just happened. After appropriations, it'll then go to the floor of the assembly for a full body vote in the assembly. And then it goes over to the Senate to do the same exact thing. Goes through rules, goes through policy committees, goes through appropriations, goes to the floor of the Senate. If there are changes done in that body, which 99.9% of the time there are, it has to come back on concurrence to the assembly to be voted on by the full body so that the final bill that gets to the governor's desk has has been voted on that exact language by both the senate and the assembly and then we also have timelines around we have a 72 hour rule so things have to be in print for 72 hours before we can vote on the final product so there's things like that that have to be worked into the process so there's a lot of process there's a lot of politics within the process there's lots of policy within the process and politics so there's a lot to it frankly i'm just finished my fourth year and i'm still learning it's a it's a very scheduled calendared process
0: Buffy, we recently had Professor Joel Rogers that really opened our eyes to the impact that outside of the state, third-party industry groups write model laws, find a sponsor in the state, fund the expert witnesses who come and talk about it, and then sometimes fund campaigns for the legislators who support it. Tell us a little about From your standpoint as a legislator, whether you think we should be concerned about this lack of transparency of where some of these laws come from?
2: I think it happens on both the Democrat and the Republican side. You have organizations like ALEC, which run a right-wing agenda. They're most famously known for the stand-your-ground laws that have had a huge negative impact from my perspective on our communities. But you also have organizations like Giffords, Gabby Giffords' organization, and I'm a little biased because my husband runs the organization, but they run model legislation in many states all around combating our gun violence and ensuring that our communities are staying safer, right? So you see it on both sides. Each state's different. I think ultimately, in the end of the day, legislators need to be held accountable to their votes and the bills that they're running and what they're doing and the power lies with their constituents. And make no mistake about it, no matter what, if I'm doing a bill, I did a bill last year that we modeled off of the UK, a UK bill, it was an international law that we then put in, into effect here, which got signed into law. But make no mistake about it, my boss are my voters right? And so I am held accountable to them. And that is what is most important. I always support more transparency under any circumstance on anything with regard to politics, whether you're talking about money, whether you're talking about relationships with lobbyists, whether you're talking about stuff's coming from out of state or wherever, any kind of transparency mechanism, I think is really critical, just because, you know, voters deserve the right to know where information is coming from, who's funding that, what that looks like. So if there's any mechanisms to support that, I, I agree with it. But I, also, I, too, will am curious, okay, what are other states doing that is working? I want to know if something is working. Let's see how we can replicate that here in California. And ultimately, my voters will decide if they like my job or they don't. And if they like that I'm modeling a bill off of the UK, and this was about social media and keeping our kids safe online, great. If they don't like it, they can vote me out of office. And that's really the real where the power lies.
0: And now let's take a brief break from Assemblymember Buffy Wicks to hear a word from our sponsors.
3: Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade, ProCertus is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertus.com.
0: Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research, with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions, or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law.
1: Welcome back to our conversation with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks.
0: Buffy, let me talk about this idea of modeling after another state, because as you well know, Texas SB-8 was the model law that attempted to provide a bounty $10,000 private right to sue against abortion providers or virtually anybody related to the abortion or reproductive rights. California turned around, SB 1327 used it as a framework to write a gun control law, very narrowly tailored to ghost guns and serial numbers. But I wonder about whether that type of bounty law is a distraction from the underlying issue. You, I know, have spoken out against gun violence.
2: Well, I think a couple of things. One, I think, you know, and I know the governor called on that that bill to be done and obviously signed it into law. And he was um, very engaged in that process. And he has been very committed to this issue above and beyond that one bill. He has really championed for years ensuring that guns are out of our communities. I mean, he was the main sponsor in 2016 for a ballot measure that would require background checks on ammunition, has a long track record on this. So I think he's done a lot of work in this space In addition to that bill, we did a series of a bunch of other bills all around ghost guns. I did one myself. We have a gun violence prevention working group in the legislature. It's about 20 of us that work on this every single year that are doing everything we can from supporting increased funding for supporting gun violence prevention programs that are doing that really hard work of sort of violence disruption in our communities to tackling ghost guns and 3D printed guns. I mean, you look at the gun issue like in Oakland, increasingly, these are homemade guns that are being used that are not accounted for. So there's a number of things I think we can do. I think that's one example of many of the things that we're doing. It's the one that garnered the most press because of the Texas example and Anything that we can do to stop the gun violence, we should do and pursue. Which is why I supported the bill. But to me, looking at it in totality of the whole package, I think is also really important.
1: I just want to stay on this idea of of that legislative process and, and swing back to the housing work that you've been doing. You're deeply involved in housing issues in California. It's been really your your signature effort, and everyone recognizes that the plight of unhoused people and affordable housing is critical in California. It isn't a partisan issue. It affects everyone. What makes it challenging to address these issues?
2: That's a really big question. (laughs) I could spend all day talking about this, but I think, you know, a couple of things. For decades, we've underfunded affordable housing. Decades. Governor Newsom has done more for affordable housing in terms of funding than all modern governors combined. So we were chronically underfunding affordable housing, so that's one issue. Secondly, Over the past five decades or so, we've made it very difficult to build housing in California. It's a very regulated industry. I support regulation where it makes sense, but also at the same time, you want to make sure that you are still still allowing us to build. So a lot of the work that we've done over the last five plus years has really been to sort of streamline, especially 100% affordable housing, which is really important. That's that's housing that is serving our lowest income communities and ensuring that we have the housing stock that we need. We're about 3.5 million homes shy of where we need to be in California. About a million of those for very, very low-income folks. So there's a huge need to streamline so that we can onboard this housing very quickly. There's also a huge need for the funding. We've made huge strides in the streamlining. I I ran a big bill this last year, AB 2011, that that was doing exactly just that. That was a tough bill, and we got it through. There's a lot of politics to all of this, as you can imagine. A lot of stakeholders involved, A lot of local municipalities have real concern with the state streamlining or taking away their ability to sort of stop some of the housing that we think is really imperative. Very much three-dimensional chess. And to your point, it is not a partisan issue. And this is why I like working on it. It's not Democrat versus Republican, right? You have the whole spectrum involved in terms of Democrats who don't want to build housing and Republicans who don't want to build housing and Democrats who want to build a lot of housing and Republicans who want to build a lot of housing. For my bill, AB 2011, I got it off the floor of the assembly because I had six Republicans who voted for the bill. And I needed that in California in a state that has two thirds Democrat control in the assembly. And and I'll work with Republicans where I can. If we have the same interest, I will work with you. I don't care what party you are. And that's one of the things I actually enjoy about the state legislature versus, versus Congress. But I think those are we're just sort of unraveling decades and decades of neglect on this issue and so it's going to take some time i'm actually pretty optimistic about the future when it comes to housing and what i think we can do i'm optimistic because of the work that we've done on the streamlining piece i'm cautiously optimistic around the funding conversations that we're having we are headed into a more difficult budget year but i think that there's a real awakening and political awareness by our constituency to fix the problem. Because I'll tell you, when I come home every weekend or every night, when my colleagues go home every weekend, 79 of my colleagues in the assembly get asked the same question I get asked why is there so much homelessness in our communities? doesn't matter where you're from. If you're from Placer County or Alameda County, you're getting asked the same question. They want to see results and they deserve results. So I think there's more of a desire now because of the fact that the crisis has metastasized into such a crisis that it is, that I do think we're going to start to see some of the changes that we all want.
1: A quick follow-up to that, because I was able to be involved in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal Effort uh, at the time that Obama came into office. And it was really fascinating for me to see what we call sausage making. And part of that was the compromises that have to be made during the bill creation and passage process. So, as a legislator, especially someone who perhaps championed a particular bill, what's the calculus for deciding to compromise, to move a bill forward versus allowing a bill to
2: die? It's a really good question. I killed a bill this year that would would have brought about more increased penalties and fines for refineries who were polluting, and we'd gotten it through the assembly relatively clean, meaning I didn't take too many amendments. The oil and gas industry was fighting the bill when it came out of the appropriations committee in the Senate. The language that the oil and gas industry wanted was inserted into the bill, and I felt like it just would have made the bill too meaningless. It would have been a hollow victory that didn't actually result in any positive impact for my communities. And so I killed, I actively killed the bill. Sometimes you'll do that. And in part, because also what I didn't want to do is pass the bill, pass it out of the Senate, go to the governor's desk, get signed. And then I can't really take another bite at the apple because people will say, oh, that's done. That issue's done. So by pulling back, I can go back at it again now and have another way to think about it. I've been in situations too, where I had, again, a big housing bill, AB 2011, that was undergoing, we were undergoing negotiations in the Senate on that bill. And sometimes what can happen is language will get inserted into your bill through the committee process that you don't necessarily agree to. And we were in a situation with my sponsors, the organizations that were that were supportive of the bill and that were really lobbying on it, that if there were certain provisions that were put in the bill, we would have decided to walk away from the bill. And I think sometimes you have to do that because while you, everyone, you know, when you get to the legislature, they say, don't marry your bills, right? And I like marry every one of my bills. I become way too emotionally involved in all of them and invested in all of them. But sometimes you do have to decide, maybe it's time for divorce on this one, just because, you know, you want to go back at it. And you don't want to have a bill where you've made so many amendments to the bill that it's basically utterly useless. What's the point of that? I can just go do another job. And so I'm all about making compromise if I feel like I can massage some of the politics to get the bill done, if it doesn't hurt the real structural integrity of the bill. But if you're compromising too much, and then you're just walking away with basically a a shell of a bill or it's a christmas tree where it's so weighted with all these different provisions that it makes it useless there's no point. Yeah, you get to the governor will probably sign it. And because you've addressed the politics effectively, and you get to do a tweet and maybe a press release and maybe a press conference about how great you've done this thing to solve this problem. But what are you actually really solving? So I'm willing to walk away from bills if I need to, I'm willing to compromise if it doesn't hurt the structural integrity of the bill. And there hasn't been a bill that I've written yet that has made it through the process without some level of compromise. Um, turns out I don't write perfect legislation out of the gate and <laughs> either any of my colleagues. But at the same time, you don't want to make it a useless bill. Yeah. And actually can I also just say often what I find is when it's going through the committee process it's strengthening the bill because you're working with experts in that space. If a housing bill comes through my committee, I my chief housing consultant's been doing housing for 17 years. She knows where every which way of government code lies in terms of how to make this thing work. And so often the, the, the committee process will also help strengthen the bill or help kind of re, refine and, and define exactly what you're trying to do.
1: Let's take a brief break to hear from our sponsors.
2: The hybrid
3: online JD program at Monterey College of Law offers the flexibility to attend classes remotely.
2: Two factors for me when choosing a law school were that it needed to be accredited and offer an online option. The hybrid program allows me to attend classes remotely, which really helps fit my professional and personal schedule. The program is structured and rigorous and taught by professors currently practicing in the legal field.
3: To learn more or to apply for their next term, visit MontereyLaw.edu.
2: For
0: more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to SidebarMedia.org.
2: The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law. Built for change. Built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu.
0: Welcome back to our conversation with California Assemblymember Buffy Wicks.
1: The reason I even became aware of you and the work that you're doing is because of the Dobbs argument that you listened to, and then you told a very personal and poignant story on Twitter about one of the things, or how it was affecting you to listen to that. And you said something in that Twitter story that I want to talk about a little bit. It was, It's our freedoms that are being openly discussed. It's our ability to access the health care that we need that's in jeopardy. It's our lives that are literally at stake. When you're using the word our, it was women. Can you speak to kind of representation and diversity within state legislature and what that means?
2: Yeah, it's, it's hugely important. And I part again, part of the reason I ran was because of Donald Trump and feeling like women's voices weren't going to be heard at the federal level. What could I do at the state level? I'm in the legislature. I'm a mom of two young kids. I've got a six-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. I can count on one hand how many moms of young kids are in the California state legislature of the 120. Literally, it's like four or five of us. That was particularly important during COVID because I was struggling just like every other working parent out there trying to navigate having my kid out of school. I had a new baby at the time. I had a three-year-old at the time. That struggle is very different from, say, a 65-year-old guy who had kids 30 years ago and hasn't dealt with either the cost of childcare, all the other things that we're kind of contending with. So I think diverse perspectives are critical. I think we need more women at the table. I think we need more people of color at the table. I think we need more women of color at the table when we're really making these decisions, especially in a state like California that is so diverse. We've made some headway in terms of the gender representation in the California state legislature. When I came in, I think we were like at 22 or 23% of the state legislature. Now I think we're at 35 or 40%, just even this past election cycle. So we're getting closer, which is important. But I also now having done the job and I go back and forth every night because I prefer to put my girls to bed and do dinner time with them and bath time with them. And I spend three hours on the road to do that. But I'm lucky enough that I get to do that. I have colleagues in L.A. who they're away from their kids Monday through Thursday. And I just feel for them. And and I know why now. Parents, especially of young kids, don't run for office because it is so hard. Which is exactly why we need their voice in the state legislature. So I think the representation is really, really important. We have to make it easier for people to run for office. This is why I co-authored a bill my first year that would allow candidates to use campaign funds for childcare purposes. Because what what ends up happening is it's wealthier people that run for office, right? It's hard to run for office. I was working. I was, my baby was six months old when I ran. I was campaigning full-time. It's a real stress on the family. It's a stress on your relationship. It's a stress for your kids. It's very difficult, but that perspective is so critical.
0: Buffy, let me go from the micro, which is the challenges you've just outlined, which are really fascinating, and I think ones that I hope we take seriously as we look forward to how we legislate and how we structure legislatures. Several of our program guests have suggested that due to the stalemate in the U.S. Congress, that state legislatures may be at their most powerful and influential period in recent history, and maybe in distant history. Do you and your colleagues in Sacramento feel that that's a fair representation? And if so, what are your priorities to take advantage of this influence, not just on state issues, but on national issues?
2: I 1000% agree. And again, I didn't totally appreciate this until I actually got the job. And it also might be the time that we're in politically right now, where it does feel like it's so hard to get anything done in DC. And just look at my example, right? I got I just finished my fourth year. I've been chair of housing committee for about a year. I got that in my third year. Chair of a committee that's a really important issue in the state that impacts a lot of people. To do that in Congress, that would be a 20 or 30 year endeavor to get a chairmanship in Congress. And because of the challenges of DC, a bill like AB 2011, I just don't even know that that's possible in Washington, D.C. And if you look at a state like California, where we have we're a full time legislature, we've got committee staff, I've got district staff, I've got Sacramento staff, I've got 10, 12 people that work for me, my policy team. That's a really robust amount of folks that are helping to think all this stuff through. We've got a pretty sophisticated legislature around policy issues. We're the fourth largest economy in the world. A lot of the bills that we do here in California can set the stage for other states or even nationally. And one example, as I mentioned earlier, is the bill I was doing that I borrowed from the UK called age-appropriate design, creating more parameters around products that kids are accessing in terms of online products and apps and social media sites and such. That is now a bill that's probably going to be replicated in other states and potentially federally as well. And we can model legislation here in California in particular that can then be a model for federal policy. We can do proof of concept here in California in a way because we have Democrats control the the legislature and, and the governor's office that can then be replicated. I'm a big believer in let's demonstrate what progressive policies can look like. Let's actually fix our problems here. Let's have a strong social safety net. Let's tackle our homelessness crisis. Let's do all the things, provide good educational opportunities and do the criminal justice reform work that I think we need to do so we can model it in other places. That's really powerful. You know, I get asked semi regularly, oh, you're going to run for Congress one day? And I'm like, well, why would I want to be in Congress when I feel way more effective here? The bills that I do actually have a measurable impact on people's lives here. And no, no offense to my colleagues in Congress. I think the work that they're doing is great. But I think what has undervalued, and I think it's becoming more valued as of late, is the work that the state legislatures can do.
1: Thank you for that. It echoes what our other guests have said about the misperception that the state legislature is a farm team for Congress, when really an enormous amount of power lies in the state legislature and ignoring that allows it to fly under the radar and not be part of our thinking about how to affect change.
2: Well, and just to add on to that, it's when you look at California, you know, our environmental standards, our housing policy, our educational opportunities for young people, our social safety nets around food and unemployment insurance, our criminal justice reform issues. I mean, at every turn, your state government impacts you. And the fact that we're also a wealthier state that has money where we can actually figure out how to address some of these needs. There's so much power that lies in that.
1: So one of the things that I heard a lot after the Dobbs opinion was issued was a plaintive cry of what can we do now? So there's often times where where even those of us who have tools in our toolbox that others don't feel powerless to affect change. What would you tell to your constituents or a law student or anyone else out there about how to really have an effect on creating change in their state?
2: It's a great question. I mean, I think obviously it kind of depends on the issue that folks care about. A lot can be done at the state level, and I'll use Dobbs as an example. When that decision came down, in advance of that, we had had an organization called the Future of Abortion Council, FAB. They issued a report of a bunch of policy recommendations that they wanted to see done in advance of the Dobbs decision coming down. And the timing was perfect. Um, We had a blueprint, us legislators did, of all the things that we needed to do as a state that included a bill that I ran to ensure that no person could be criminally prosecuted for experiencing any kind of pregnancy loss. We had bills that would ensure that if doctors were prescribing the abortion pill out of state that they couldn't be prosecuted. Bills to protect the privacy of those that would seek out abortion care from out of state in California. We created a new website for folks coming from out of state and to be able to access the care. We ran legislation to ensure that we have the workforce to deal with the increase of abortion care that we think is gonna happen, that we are seeing happen now. And we created a fund that would be philanthropic donated money to pay for folks who couldn't afford it to come here to receive that kind of care. So we took quick action across a number of different ways to ensure that California will continue to be a reproductive freedom state for all. And that was something that we in California could do knowing that half the nation now does not have access to that care. So that was, I think, that I think demonstrates to your earlier question why the legislature is so important, but also the fact that we have a lot of agency in this moment. And if you are a listener of this podcast, if you are a law student, if you are in the legal community, in whatever way that you can help on the issues that you care about to communicate with your state legislator about about what you care about and what you think they can do, I'll tell you, like none of us believe that we hold the market on good ideas. We are looking for smart policy ideas. We're looking for fancy lawyers to help us figure that out. (laughs) I went to community college. I need the fancy lawyers to help me figure it out and the smart legal minds to help figure out all the things that we need to do. We're looking for that type of intellectual capacity to help and for folks to help manage some of the, the political realities of some of the things that we try to tackle. I'm always looking for bills where you have two sides that maybe didn't always get along coming together to try to really solve a problem. And those are some of the best bills that we have. And so in as much as people can help us navigate the, those worlds, that's incredibly important, helpful.
0: Buffy, thank you very much. This is a great place to stop, which is the call to action of not just your constituents, but all of us as constituents. And trust me, Jackie and I hear and continue to voice this opinion to our students who are future lawyers and future legislators, that they have a role to. Play play in this as well. Regardless of which political spectrum, everybody has a role to play.
2: I don't have to tell your listeners, who know this better than I do, law is always evolving and I believe we want to evolve it in a way that is inclusive and seeks justice and fairness and all of those those doctrines that we believe in. And it takes active participation by our citizenry, by our elected officials and others to ensure that that's exactly what happens. So we all have a responsibility towards that end. First and foremost, I would recommend getting to know your state legislator, your assembly member and your senator. We have a lot of really thoughtful people in this space. We have people that specialize in different things. We are always looking for good ideas because we want to solve problems and we want to do it with our constituents. Just
1: Really enjoyed hearing everything that you're involved in and the values that you bring to the work that you're doing. Especially Mitch and I have been steeped in the corruption. And then to have you come on and just be this light of progressive politics and values of equity and a real clear moral compass.
0: And that things can get done. And that we can actually get things done.
1: Well, and that don't hurt people. (laughs) Thank you so much, Buffy. Thanks for having me.
0: Jackie, that was both an illuminating as well as an encouraging summary of the type of legislative process that exists at the state level. A number of our previous guests have had nothing but alarms and warnings about abuses of the privilege. And yet an actual legislator reminded us that there's a lot that can get done at the state legislature if you have a principled, intelligent, focused effort by a, an elected official. And so I found Assemblymember Buffy Wicks a breath of fresh air.
1: Well, I'm so glad that we were able to have her on as well, because that was my reaction to Mitch. Buffy Wicks definitely, I think, showed how state legislatures can be a force of good for their constituents and for the state as well as really on the national level as well. She was talking about the steps California took post Dobbs to provide resources to women outside the state and how important that was to her. So there is an enormous impact, positive impact, that state legislatures can have in our society, and it's important for us to remind ourselves about that.
0: I also like the fact that she did circle back around to bipartisanship, even though we live, you and I live in what we consider the California bubble, where, as she mentioned, two-thirds of the elected officials are Democrats, and many of our listeners are in states that may be 180 degrees opposite. And yet, she came back repeatedly that the bipartisan effort to identify the good works necessary at the individual citizen level is what makes it work in the long haul. So her call to action is not just for those of us who live in a state where we, we're we represented by a majority, but for everyone, even if you're on the minority position now, the future is still there to do the good work and to, to get principles and policies in place.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that call to action, that we all have a role to play in our democracy, is a theme that has thread its way through every single person we have spoken to. So I think it really is part of, we wanted to start this podcast to talk about constitutional and civil rights and how important they are. And one of the things that is coming out is that we all have a role to play in protecting them. Thank you everyone for listening to Sidebar. We loved having you here. As always, you can reach Mitch and I at sidebarmedia.org, and let us know what you think.
0: Thank you to our sponsors, Presertus, Trellis.law, and as always, to the excellent production work of David Eakin, our producer and music performer. And thank you to Gogo Zoger, our social media expert.
1: Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities.
0: For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's
2: calawschools.org.